Hello and welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, on the unceded homelands of the Mohican people who are known today as the Stockbridge Muncie community. I'm Sina Bazilahickey. And I'm Bria Barthel. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we begin with a citizen action press conference on housing justice and child care presented by Willie Terry. Then we hear excerpts from an Albany Common Council meeting covering issues such as affordable housing and free school lunches brought to us by Moses Nagel. Later on, we hear the final part of Marshall Lazarus's series of interviews with Fred Miller and his work over 53 years to bring change to organizations. After that, Isabella Laforte talks about safety on the UAlbany campus with a fellow student who feels unsafe after a recent incident on campus. Finally, the Rhythms of Rebellion series by Taina Asili is back. And for the next eight weeks, each Friday, we will be sharing a shortened version of each episode of Hudson Mohawk Magazine with support by Moses Nagel. Stick around to hear Taina Taina's interview with Martha Redbone. But first, here are the headlines. The Times Union reports that the Albany Police Department is investigating several officers who have worked a special security detail in the city's housing authority. Sources say potential double-dipping is being examined, with the officers potentially charging the housing authority and the city for the same hours. A request for a summons for a charge against Chandler Hickenbottom, an activist with Saratoga Black Lives Matters, was filed Wednesday by Public Safety Commissioner Jim Mont- Montanino with Saratoga Springs City Court in response to a heated city council meeting two weeks earlier. The move was criticized by the mayor. City officials said Hickenbottom, who called for city officials to agree to meet with Black Lives Matter, exceeded the two minutes she was allotted during the meeting's public comment period. The Schenectady City Council has scheduled a special meeting for Friday to approve an additional $5.2 million in Federal American Rescue Plan Act, the ARPA funding, for a new poll a new pool complex in Central Park. This will bring the total cost of the project to $10 million. And Cohoes Mayor Bill Keeler confirmed Wednesday that he will seek re-election to the four-year post. The state labor department has finalized farm labor overtime regulations. The phased-in gradual reduction in the overtime pay threshold will begin on January 1st, 2024, with the threshold set to at 56 hours. The process will continue with the overtime threshold limit, reducing by four hours every other year's year until reaching 40 hours in 2032. And that's it for the headlines. For those of you just tuning in, you are listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, listener-supported radio that builds community in Troy and the surrounding capital region through broad grassroots participation. Our content is produced by volunteers. To learn how you can contribute your time, your talents, or your financial support, go to mediasanctuary.org, email us at hmm at mediasanctuary.org, or call us 518 272 2390. 
Capital Region Citizen Action held a press conference for housing justice and child care on Wednesday, February 22nd, 23. Our roaming labor correspondent, Willie Terry, attended the event at West Capitol Park in downtown Albany. This is Willie Terry, your roaming labor correspondent for the Hudson Mohawk magazine. And I'm here today at the Capitol, East Capitol Park in Albany, New York, where uh, Citizen Action is holding a press conference where they are calling for housing, justice, and child care. Uh, this is one of the eight press conferences that they have are having simultaneously around the state. Good afternoon, Capital District. Thank you all for joining us here and those who are joining us online. I'm Torian Lewis, Community Organizer for Citizen Action of New York here in the Capital District. We're here today because the everyday people of Capital District and beyond deserve guaranteed housing that is safe and dignified, no matter their income or social status. We're here today because everyone in the Capital District and beyond deserves to live in a healthy and resilient community protected from extreme weather and pollution. We're here today because whatever our race, background, or zip code, we all want high quality childcare and public education so our kids can thrive, parents can work, and we can build safe and healthy communities. We're here today calling on Assemblymember Angelo Santa Barbara to stop ignoring his constituency who have repeatedly reached out to his office by phone, email, and even stopped by his office to schedule a time to speak with him to no avail. So we're here to make sure that he and every other shows up for them in the same way they showed up for him at the polls, to not only support statewide tenant protections in the face of the rapidly escalating housing and climate crises, but legislation increasing access to childcare, including before and after care, and a living wage for providers who are the literal workforce behind the workforce. That's right. So, without further ado, I'd like to introduce you to Justin Chairs. Thank you for having me here today. Um, it's a great honor to stand with so many people who are constantly working to do this, this hard work in the area. As Torin just said, today is about making sure that our assemblyman, my assemblyman, because I'm speaking plain, it's not personal, it's about doing the right thing. So when you're talking about climate justice and making sure we have clean jobs and making sure that we are tackling the crisis head on, you can't stand on the sidelines when you're a state legislator. When it comes to universal childcare and actually helping the families inside of our community and the 111th district, you can't stand on the sideline. You can't pretend to show up in the morning. You can't be there for a photo op. You can't be worrying about the chicken dinner that you gotta get a picture at when there's business at hand that needs to be taken care of in the Capitol building. When it comes to housing, and I, I wore my light jacket today on purpose so I could feel this cold because that means there's a family out here that's got to feel that cold regularly because they don't have secure housing. Because affordable housing isn't really affordable when you don't give them the proper opportunities and jobs they need to make sure they can maintain it. When you're not here every single day inside the legislative building fighting for your constituents who are showing up at your office, when they're calling me, telling me that they can't get a hold of you, that's a problem for me. So I need 
assemblyman Santa Barbara to not only step up and do the job, but to make sure that he's not sitting comfortably on what he's been doing because business as usual isn't getting it done. In 2023, business as usual isn't handling business anymore. I need every family to know that they can count on our state legislator to be there for them, to be in his office, to show up where it matters most, to make sure his vote counts, not to abstain, not to disappear throughout the midday, but to be here and fight for every single family who needs him. If there's a child out here who isn't safe in what they're doing, that's a problem for me. So it's a pleasure to stand with Citizen Action to make sure that their voices are heard, to stand with every citizen, every constituent in our district, and to make sure that every assembly member is fighting for Albany, Schenectady, and New York State. Thank you so much. I appreciate you having me here today. Thank you, Justin. Next to speak will be Hassan Harris Wilcher, who is a fearless member leader from Albany with the unapologetic passion for housing. Hassan. Good afternoon, everybody. Good afternoon. All right, that's what I like to hear. My name is Hassan Harris Wilcher, and I was born and raised here in Albany. I used to live right down the street over there, right down on Park Avenue, when Lincoln Park was Lincoln Park. When I used to walk down to my school at Montessori Magnet that was down there. I lived in an apartment where I was kicked out. Ooh, that ain't right. Me and my mom were living there for a majority of my rearing years. And the landlord decided he wanted his girlfriend to go move in. So I got to move out. Then me and my mom, who is a single mother, who works in the education system, serving special needs children, had to go and find a new place to live. We had to scour the Capital Region District area and try to find a place to live. Luckily, I didn't have to move too far, moved down to the historic pastures, where about through middle school, all the way through high school and college is where I lived. But that area wasn't much better. I routinely had to deal with, with flooding and the roof leaking directly on top of my face. My bed was waterlogged and soaked every time it rained. My mom eventually, the flooding, went to my mom's room as well. But often I woke up with a waterlogged bed while I had to wake up and go to school. I say this not for a pity story, but because this is the reality that many of our New Yorkers and Americans face. We have to live in the housing that has been designed and raised for us. We need good protections. We need good cause. We need lead protection for our young children and people growing up in New York because lead is still a contributing factor to poverty, lack of education, lack of resources for our children and their parents who have to deal with the effects as well. Because it is a household that needs to realize that they have the power and that they should have the power 
to raise the concerns to their landlords. Maybe their landlord isn't, isn't a big corporation. Maybe it's just a single person. Or maybe it's a series of corporations that have bounced in and out of that rental association or that housing area like I've gone through. I've gone through both. And I can't tell you which is better than the other. So we need to pass good cause, not only here in Albany, but in Schenectady and statewide. People deserve to live in a house that feels like a home, that feels safe and secure so I can wake up and not worry about wringing out their clothes in the morning. Worry about how they're gonna make the next rent payment and do they have to starve themselves so their children can eat. We need good cause, we need lead protection and we need other solutions like TOPA. We need tenants to feel empowered to live in a safe community. This is the New York we can make happen today. Yes, thank you. Thank you, Hassan. When I say housing is a human right, y'all say fight, fight, fight. Housing is a human right. Fight, fight, fight. Thank you. Um, our assembly member, Owusu Anane, was supposed to be here, but he wasn't able to. He's a common um, council. Common council, sorry. Common council member. Um, but I would like to read a quote from him. He said, people across our city are at risk of losing their homes, and it's long past time we protect them. With citizen actions, leadership, tenants fought hard for and won good cause protections here in Albany, and they shouldn't have to be afraid of the next court decision that will take them away. It's time to pass good cause statewide so the hardworking families in our city and cities across the state can sleep at night knowing they can't be unjustly turned out of their homes. That's right. All right. Thank you. Yeah. Housing is a human right. Fight, fight, fight. Thanks to our roving labor correspondent, Willie Terry, for sharing these excerpts from the Capital Region Citizen Action's recent conference on housing justice and childcare. Our next story follows up on the idea of affordable housing issues. The Albany Common Council met on Thursday, February 23rd. They discussed several issues, including the mayor's veto of the ch um, change to affordable housing requirements passed by the council, a resolution to support in support of free school lunches and community frustration with the proliferation of short-term rentals in many neighborhoods. Moses Nagel reports. The Albany Common Council held their bi-monthly meeting on February 23rd. The council read aloud a letter from Mayor Kathy Sheehan explaining her veto of the resolution passed earlier in the month requiring new development in the city to have an increased amount of affordable housing. I am returning to the Common Council without my approval, Ordinance 421-22. To be clear, my opposition to this legislation is not a signal I disagree with creating more affordable housing. It is about the math and the economics of attracting development, growth, and diverse housing options to the city of Albany. I once again stress affordable housing 
is a regional issue and placing burdens on development in Albany will simply shift our projects to our neighboring suburbs and cities and will deny our residents access to new housing and the benefits of increased tax base. Should Ordinance 42122 become law, virtually none of the projects in our nearly $1 billion development pipeline will be commercially viable. A representative from Conifer, an active affordable housing developer in the city of Albany and across New York State, stated when a local municipality introduces legislation that restricts inclusionary units at 50% of the area medium income, you immediately tell a developer, market rate or otherwise, that they need to go and seek out some type of operating subsidies or development subsidies, and you may be missing the intent of the original legislation. Typically, we would see the municipalities would be at 80% area median income. Ordinance 421-22 is flawed on many levels. It will ultimately lead to fewer housing units being built at a time when the state is mandating that we grow our housing stock. And it will ensure that few units are built in our city will be heavily subsidized. Low income supportive housing further concentrated in our lowest income neighborhoods. By voting to approve ordinance 421-22, the Common Council has disregarded the expertise of economic development and affordable housing professionals with decades of cumulative experiences helping attract and create both affordable and market rate housing. This ordinance will hurt our tax base and result in Albany missing out on some of the most substantial growth our region has seen in decades. It will push development to the suburbs and residents in our formerly red line neighborhoods will continue to bear the burden of concentrated poverty. I urge this body to reconsider the information shared by these professionals and allow my veto to stand. The Common Council will vote at a future meeting on whether to override the mayor's veto. Next, there was some discussion of a resolution urging New York State to fund a permanent free school lunch program up to the 12th grade. Councilmember Romero. There was a federal program during COVID that funded free lunch to all students, but the program expired in June of last year. There's been some data from SUNY Albany School of Public Health that showed that 70% of Black and Hispanic capital region households experience food insecurity, especially uh, more so since COVID. And there's been um, studied correlations between childhood hunger and the effects on absenteeism, scholastic performance, and behavioral issues. So uh, this bill in the state legislature right now would create this universal free meal program and it has so much more effect than just providing free meals to students. It would also eliminate the $24.9 million uh, per year unpaid school meal debt, save families about $140 per child in grocery bills, but then it would also eliminate the stigma with receiving public assistance. I think it's a really wonderful bill. I'm, I'm hoping that it moves through the state legislature, and I'm hoping for its passage today in the Common Council and uh, co-sponsor from ev as many people as possible. Mr. Johnson. And I just want to say I'm in highly uh, favor of this as an educator, as a student who uh, went to school 19 when you used to have to pay for your lunch, and we didn't have money to have lunch, um, and they gave us a different lunch. And the stigmatisms that are uh, connected to that 
apply a lot of pressure to students. And, you know, currently all of our students receive free lunch, free breakfast, and it's just a, a tremendous amount of pressure off of um, people at a time when um, people are struggling. So I think that this is important. I think it's, you know, a sign of the times where, you know, a lot of people that unfortunately their first meal and, and sometimes their only um, good meals are at school. So with that in mind, I think it's only right that we um, support something like this. The resolution passed the council unanimously. During public comment, several residents spoke in favor of a citywide moratorium on Airbnb-type short-term rentals. My name is Daryl McGrath, and I am here tonight to ask the council to impose a moratorium on all new short-term rentals in Albany. The proliferation of short-term rentals will continue, even as the council considers regulation. In our immediate three-block area around Irving Street, we believe we have at least four houses that each may have three or four units of short-term rentals. Do the math. If you multiply that by eight or ten streets in Albany, we may already have several hundred units being operated as short-term rentals throughout the city. The draft ordinance is based on the expectation that managers of short-term rentals will operate on an honor system. How in the world will the city compel compliance with an ordinance? This draft ordinance has no clear penalty for illegal operations, and the proposed $100 registration fee is a joke. This draft naively suggests that this is a cottage industry of owner-occupants. I believe that the corporate short-term rental industry could destroy affordable housing in Albany. There are obviously responsible owner-occupants of short-term rentals, but the commercial industry in this practice is prevalent, and it is already a huge problem in this city. Please do not assume that opponents to short-term rentals are privileged homeowners thinking, not in my backyard and not on my street. Many of us have been tenants, and homeownership for me personally was a very hard-earned dream. We are very concerned about the depletion of affordable housing in Albany. And again, I urge the council to declare a moratorium on new short-term rentals. Thank you. Marie Bruschi read the comments of Nancy Goody. She wants the city to declare a moratorium preventing the creation of additional short-term rentals in the city. She thinks this should be for one year or until the city can prepare proper, reasonable regulations for these short-term rentals. And the affected neighborhood residents should be involved in drafting these new regulations. Short-term rentals remove affordable housing from Albany residents. Short-term rentals are the same as hotels, but in a residential neighborhood. The vast majority of them are not homeowner-occupied. The vast majority are owned by out-of-town investors who are motivated by profits and don't contribute to our city. Short-term rentals are hotels, and their guests do not pay a nightly, daily hotel tax. These hotels do not employ union workers as other hotels do, and the city does not get any benefit of a hotel tax. In fact, they're not regulated in any way, 
Anyone can buy a property and turn it into a short-term rental or a hotel. Every other business we can think of in Albany is regulated. Listings frequently indicate more people may be guests or rent rooms than is legally allowed in our zoning laws. There's no way to check on overcrowding and the legal definition of a bedroom, which we think is being violated already by short-term rentals. Guests or the hotel managers often do not shovel, don't rake, don't sweep as required, and that's happened on Irving Street. The vast majority of these hotels, she calls them, are located in the nicest and most historic parts of Albany, in our small historic residential neighborhoods. These historic districts are special places because owners have cared for and created well-maintained buildings over many, many years, despite adverse conditions. Therefore, they are attractive to the residents and the visitors. And now, out-of-town investors are leaping on the benefits without any skin in the game and with no thought of their own adverse effect on the very areas they seem to invest in. How many hotels are acceptable on one block in the city of Albany? Three, five, 20, every building? Reporting for Hudson Mohawk Magazine, this is Moses Nagel. And thanks to Moses Nagel for sharing those excerpts from the Albany Common Council meeting on Thursday, February 23rd. At a recent Albany Institute event, a report from the 1920s was discussed that showed that both housing insecurity and food insecurity have been big issues in Albany for over 100 years. For those of you just tuning in, I'm Sina Bazilahiki. And I'm Bria Barthel. You're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network, WOOCLP 105.3 FM Troy, WOOGLP 92.7 FM Troy, WOOSLP 98.9 FM Schenectady, and WOOALP 106.9 FM Albany and streaming online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. If you like what you hear, you can support this program by telling a friend. Sharing is caring. Spreading the word does so much. Find today's stories and more at mediasanctuary.org. And now we go to the final segment of a four-part series, where Fred Miller talks with our correspondent, Marsha Lazarus, about the alignment of civil rights values with those of the field of organizational development, sometimes called OD. Fred also talks about what the W.E.B. Du Bois Freedom Award means to him and fostering culture change within corporations. Fred, you talk about the values of the civil rights movement and the values of OD, or organizational development, as being aligned. One of the posters at Martin Luther King when he was in Memphis, that says, I am a man. I think in our organization we say, I am a person. I am a human being. Welcome to Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Marsha Lazarus. What a pleasure it is to be speaking with Fred Miller, CEO of the Khalil Jamison Consulting Group, in Troy, New York. Fred and his team at Khalil Jamison work with organizations interested in creating inclusive, collaborative workplaces that unleash the talent and creativity of all their people. Fred, when you were starting your career, you felt 
that your talents or where you could make a change were particularly suited to organizational development working within businesses. Can you just elaborate a little bit about those aligned values between the civil rights movement and the field of OD? The challenge for me, I'll answer the second part first, the challenge for me was that how do we change the society and how do we give it, how do we have it be different? And many, I went to Lincoln University, historically black college, and in the 60s, so I was right in the middle of some of the civil rights stuff and all that was happening. Um, my professor was Charles Hamilton. He wrote the book Black Power with Stokely Carmichael. So I was learning a lot, you know, coming from the inner city of Philadelphia, I had the experience there, which is outstanding, and then going to Lincoln University and just hearing about all these things of change. I mean, when I was started college, we were still calling black people Negroes. So, I mean, it was many shifts going on in the society. We have to change every sector of the society, but we know a lot of the money's in the corporation, and we know if the corporations don't support it, you're not gonna have the money, let alone, I don't know if you can bring about societal change. And we got to work on the communities and we have to the communities do their actions because that's critical because those actions in, inspire and challenge others to change. And we got to have people who you're trying to change have ears so that they're listening to what's going on and willing to commit it. So I made a decision I'd go to the corporate sector to try to bring a change there that would allow support for the people who were in the streets trying to create difference. And I feel good about that. All of our clients have community things that they're doing. I think they all can do more. So I don't think we're there. But I think we have made it clear and clearly after George Ford and other deaths, murders, that it's clear that the corporation has more and more responsibility to community. I think a lot of the things that the civil rights movement was trying to do are about respect and justice and letting people not be put in a box and not treating them like slaves inside of an organization, I think is what we've been trying to change inside of our organizations. And making sure that everybody, no matter what their difference might be, is a welcome employee inside of the organization. And I say again and again to our clients, you have a right to fail, and you have a right to say, I don't want any of those people here. Fine, don't have those people or those people or those people. You'll be out of business, I am sure, in this century. But you have a right to do that. So I'm not trying to make our clients be diverse. I'm not trying to make them say, you gotta hire these people or that people. They need to come to that realization in their own process. We might help them, but they gotta come to that realization and say, we need the best talent out there. And talent is everywhere in the society. And we need to not have some criteria or some filter that's keeping out people because they're different in some ways. Once they get that, then they are good at changing their HR policies, their management policies, and other things so that when they bring one find that person and recruit that person and bring that person in, they don't have internal barriers to that person because of their difference. That's the work. I see several of our clients historically having worked on that and make it a different kind of environment internally than they would have had previously. You mentioned having your employees feel welcome. Is that really the definition 
the essence behind employees feeling a sense of belonging? Do they go together? I think they go together, but it's not sufficient. I think it's step one, and it's just feel welcome. Feeling included is much more than feeling welcome. I want people to feel welcome, but I want people to be able to bring their best to the organization. And I want them to bring their full selves to the organization in service of the organization being successful, in service of its mission and its vision and its strategies. And I want to be able to contribute all that I can in service of that. And in many organizations, when you ask people to contribute and you bring people in, it's been a very narrow bandwidth. This is the level of acceptable behaviors. Acceptable behaviors have to fit inside of this bandwidth. And our work has always been, you got to build out that bandwidth. you got to build out that bandwidth. you got to say, there are people who are different than the traditional group or regular employees that can fulfill the mission and do the work of the organization. So we have to increase the bandwidth. It doesn't mean everything goes, but it means you got to get a lot broader in what you're thinking about around people and who they can be and who they, who they, how they contribute than you have historically. And that is not, again, it's not one size fits all and it's not just one type of person that's going to be successful. The human species is very, 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 very diverse. And brilliance is in every sector of that diversity. And so as an organization, I can't say, well, I don't want them because, or I don't want them because, or they won't work for us because. It's not true. All of, all of those groups, all of those people, all of those individuals can probably contribute significantly to your organization if you create a culture that supports them to do their best work. Fred, you clearly have commitment to this work. You know, 53 years. Wow. I just salute you for your efforts and dedication. I also understand, Fred, that you were honored this past January with the W.E.B. Du Bois Freedom Award by the NAACP Berkshires chapter. What did that mean to you? Oh, it meant a lot. Lots of reasons. I mean, when I was in college, I, I read W.E.E. Du Bois. And so I read his work, which was brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. So to be associated with that name in any form or fashion is an incredible, incredible honor. Um, and they're doing some good work and some challenging work in, in that NAACP chapter. And I appreciate what they're doing. And it just reminds me, people are doing good work all over this country. And the good work to me is challenging the system and trying to have the world be a better place for everybody. That's what they're doing there, and that's what thousands and thousands and thousands of organizations and people are doing around this country. I'm an optimist. I'm the glass half full. I believe that we're going to do this. We're going to break through this and continue to move forward where human beings can be human. Inside work, outside work, as they live there, are not in boxes, not held down, not discriminated against, not shot at a, at a, cop, a cop stopping you in your car, that human beings can bring their life force to their work and their love and their passions, that people can have the families that they want to have and have those families grow and, and be successful. We can do this. I absolutely believe we can do this. We got miles to go before we sleep, but we can do this. And I'm proud to play some small, 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 small part 
in that process of change and progress. That was the final part of Marsha Lazarus's interview with Fred Miller. You can find all four parts of that story on our website, mediasanctuary.org. And now Isabella Laforte recently spoke with a fellow UAlbany student about how she feels regarding safety on campus for women. The interviewee, Julia, shared an example of harassment on campus and how she received no help from the university or from her friends. Hello, my name is Isabella Laforte and I am a UAlbany student and part of the Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies here on campus. Today, I'm here with Julia Tasheda Gomez and we are going to get a first-hand account on how women on the UAlbany campus feel about safety. Okay, so Julia, if you'd like to introduce yourself to the listeners. Hi, I'm Julia Tasheda Gomez and I'm a junior at SUNY Albany and I've lived on campus for two years and now I live off campus. My first question I'd like to ask you is, when do you feel the most safe on campus? I feel safest during the day. When there's a lot of people around, stuff like that? Yeah, and when it's bright outside. When do you feel the most unsafe on campus? When it's dark and late. Mm. And why is that? Because I feel like anything could happen. Do you feel safer with the blue button system, or would you prefer a stronger police presence? I prefer a stronger police presence. And why is that? Because if something were to happen, I know they're right there, and I'm not sure how reliable that button is. Do you think that you're alone in your experience with feeling that the police presence is a positive thing? No, I feel like a lot of people, especially women, would prefer that since Albany is a scary place. Do you feel that UPD patrols enough, or do you definitely think that they should be more present on campus? I see them on campus all the time, but I don't ever see them doing anything, so they should be more into that. In your experience at UAlbany, how many times have you experienced someone who has been through a situation that happened to them and that it went unreported? Um, I know a number of people who have experienced something and never reported it while being on campus. Why do you think that is? I think they might be ashamed or they feel like the school won't do anything to protect them. Do you think that that's a very common thing with a lot of people? That they feel um, either shame or they feel like the school won't do anything? Yes, absolutely. Are you aware of the Advocacy Center for Women on Campus? I had no idea that was a thing. Well, the Advocacy Center on campus is a place where women could go to report crimes that happen to them. I'm surprised you don't know about them. I feel like one of my questions was how could they improve, but I think they can improve by expanding their reach to students. Do you agree? Yes, I agree. I did not know it was a thing until now. Do you feel like if a crime had happened to you, would you report it? I would think about it, but I probably wouldn't go through with it. And why? because I feel like the school wouldn't really do anything that would help me or the situation. And I feel like the process would take too long where it would delay my recovery. So now you just told me before that you live downtown. What about your downtown experience? Is that much different than living uptown? Um, It's definitely different because there's not just college kids around me. It's families and people who actually live in Albany, 
but I've experienced more violence and stuff like that living downtown than I did on campus. What about the student communities that live down here? Do you feel like those areas are more safe? Not necessarily. I feel like there's a lot of gun violence where majority of UAlbany students live that are downtown. So as you said, and as you said, a bunch of other people that you've experienced don't report crimes that happen. Do you feel like this is a thing that happens on a lot of college campuses? Yes. I feel like throughout history, we've seen a number of incidences or acts of violence occur, especially towards women, and they go unreported until something worse happens. Why do you think this happens? Because... Nobody is advocating for women to speak their voices. Um, It's not something people really talk about. Um, And we don't want to be shamed by our peers or our university for speaking up. What do you think UAlbany could do to improve your feeling of safety on campus, whether it be at night or downtown? I feel like Um, there should be more lights on campus, especially during the nighttime, because it does get really dark and scary on campus. Also, they need to make the tunnels more accessible from each quad. Therefore, people aren't just walking in the middle of nowhere. We're all collectively in this tunnel with other students that only have access to it as well. Yeah, so the tunnels tunnels are an underground, um tunnel system that runs underneath the school and you find that those are more safe than being on top of campus walking around yeah because if the tunnels are only accessible through each quad then only actual students can go in and out from there if you're comfortable with sharing have you had any experiences on campus where you felt like your safety was at risk or anything that you're comfortable with sharing yes there was this one time i was at the school library which is open to the public. However, it is on campus. And I was talking to one of my girlfriends and this guy started attacking her in the middle of the library right in front of me. And I tried helping as much as possible and I was screaming for help, but there was no security in the library. So the man who attacked us eventually just walked right out while my friend was bleeding on the floor. And were there any blue buttons nearby or any UPD anywhere to be seen? No, not at all. And when we asked the people behind the desk for help, they just stood there and recorded. I'm so sorry to hear that. I know all the listeners are very sorry to hear that as well. Do you think after that experience, it changed your perception of safety on campus? Or were you did you always feel unsafe? Or did that exacerbate it? Well, I think after experiencing that, um, I'm a little bit more on edge when walking around campus. And it just reminded me that it is a public campus and anybody can just walk in and out of here. So it just made me be more aware of my surroundings, unfortunately. And do you think that had there been UPD around or a blue button maybe closer by, do you think that this would have changed things and that man would have been arrested or you know something would have been dealt with yes 
I feel like if there was a security guard there, my friends wouldn't have been attacked or attacked to that extent, and he would have been arrested a lot sooner than later. If they were there, I probably wouldn't feel the need to get in involved as much as I did. Well, Julia, thank you so much for your time. Is there anything else you'd like the listeners to know? Um, thanks so much for having me. Um, and just be aware of your surroundings. Thank you so much for listening. For any UOBD student who ever needs anything, you can always contact the UPD. The number is 518-442-3130. There is also a women's sexual assault hotline, which the number is 518-447-7716. And there is also a sexual assault and domestic violence online chat available from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. Monday through Friday. Advocates are also on campus from 1 to 4 p.m. Wednesdays and in the Health and Counseling Services Building located on the south side of Dutch Quad at the ground level facing the athletic fields on New Albany's Uptown Campus. Call the same number 518-447-7100 to schedule an appointment with the CVSVC. That is the Albany County Crime Victim and Sexual Violence Center. The CVSVC is a support system for students on campus the services are confidential, meaning their advocates won't contact you, Albany, or law enforcement without your explicit consent. Students should definitely utilize these resources that are available on campus because they are helpful. Though students may not feel that they will be helpful, they are there and they are confidential for your use. Additionally, campus community members have access to you, Albany's Title IV coordinator. Please visit the Office of Equity and Compliance website for detailed information about reporting sexual violence. Always remember you are not alone and you have a whole campus of people willing to support you. So much for listening and have a great day. That was Isabella Laforte, and this is the first of an ongoing series for a project looking at safety and relations to gender. And now to our final segment. The Rhythm of Rebellion, originally launched in 2017, is a series of interviews by Taina Asili with performing artists who are leading social change across genres and exploring the strategies they are using in their art to bring justice and healing to their communities and to our world. We are excited to partner with Taina to launch season two. Thanks to Moses Nagel for adapting Taina's interviews to fit in our program. You're listening to The Rhythm of Rebellion with Taina Asili. Martha Redbone is a Native and African-American vocalist, songwriter, composer, and educator. She's known for her unique gumbo of folk, blues, and gospel from her childhood in Harlan County, Kentucky, infused with the electric grit of pre-gentrified Brooklyn. Inheriting the powerful vocal range of her gospel-singing African-American father and the resilient spirit of her mother's Cherokee Choctaw culture, Martha broadens the boundaries of American roots music. I was curious about one of your early childhood memories in terms of music impacting or changing you in some way. Well, I have two that really resonated. I'll start with the most profound one because it has really subconsciously defined everything that I am today. So it's interesting. So um, I was raised by my grandparents in, in Kentucky until 
I went to middle school. And so moved back to Brooklyn just before I turned 12 years old. Well, when I first left Brooklyn, you know, my parents were together. When I came back to Brooklyn, I came back to a single parent household. And the only thing left of my dad was this big stereo console and a bunch of records, 45s and LPs and, and a piano. And I remember, you know, just putting on the different records and, and dancing and doing silly dances. And, you know, and at that time, like I said, my mom was battling depression and like, you know, pissed off, you know, because my dad went off with someone else, you know? So I found myself like trying to do things like be silly to like cheer her up and stuff, you know? So I'm like doing all the kind of like soul train dances and all this kind of stuff. <laughs> and I remember putting on the James Brown record um, say it loud, I'm, I'm black and I'm proud. And so I remember dancing around to that, say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud, do, 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 right? And at the end of that, my mom said, is that all you're proud to be? She said, mm. don't, don't I count for something? Wow. You know, and I remember being like 11, you know, and I didn't know what that was. I thought she was laughing. And then all of a sudden I'm like, oh, I'm in trouble. I've done something wrong. I know I did something to upset her, but I wasn't sure what it was. Mm. And so she goes, you're just, you're only proud to be black. She said, you should also be proud to be Indian. You know, she's old school. So she used the word Indian. She mm. goes, you should also be just as proud to be Indian as you are mm. black. You know, mm. and she said, do not erase us. Wow. I didn't really understand what she meant at that time. You know, don't participate in the genocide of your own people. That was the phrase, you know, wow. do not erase us. Mm. You should be just as proud to be Indian as you are black. And I thought, okay, you know, and I didn't realize at that time what an impact those words would have on the rest of my life. I had no idea. And, you know, as a black community and as descendants of indigenous people, and because of the lay of this land, we're forced to choose defined by whatever government regulations and legislations they put in, in place. There are some times where you'll be called uh, mulatto, you'll be called colored, you'll be called black, you'll be called whatever, you know, all of these different terms. And it's like, why do people keep trying to just divide us up cut us up into these little pieces of takeout pizza, you know? Mm -hmm. And then, you know, when you're, you know, walking down the street, how are you de described by other people too? So I'm going deep because that's that song, you know, say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud. That was James Brown taking ownership, you know, of who we are as black people and the black community and all of the things that the black community can build and develop on our own, you know, and that ownership and that leadership is important. It's important in every, every ethnic community. And so when I think about all of our roles, 
in our own erasure. My mom raised me, my maternal grandparents raised me, you know, and I can understand my mother seeing, you're giving all the credit to him and I'm here. I'm doing right. this work. Right. I'm, I'm, you know, working two jobs. I'm paying the rent. I'm paying the bill. And you're not even claiming me or any part of where I come from at all. Mm. All that to say is when I think about our own role in our own erasure, because it's what we've been taught, we've been taught that we don't matter. And we've been taught that we have the ability to erase ourselves. Yeah. So it looks like it's our choice right. to kill ourselves off, that we made it happen. And to me, that is the epitome of the evil of colonization that there is, where you're at the point where you can convince the oppressed to kill off themselves. Right. Exactly. You know, so basically since then, I feel like I've been doing everything I can to make sure that my story is included in this American narrative. You know, people love to talk about the story of America and this being this melting pot and all of this kind of, you know, but the reality is, is part of this melting pot is being allowed for each individual to add their spice into the stew. Mm. And we have not all been allowed to put our spice in. Exactly. Mm. So what is this other story? I think I might have been in like the third grade or something like that. And seeing um, Chaka Khan, Rufus and Chaka mm. Khan on Soul Train. And I remember how free and happy and beautiful she was and her singing. And I remember seeing the band play you know and she had all the feathers in the fringe and you know and her hair was you know just like wild and I remember that feeling of freedom of freedom you know to me she represented this woman being completely free you know and um my mother who was my kind of role model was very conservative you know, the hair was always, you know, straight and, you know, curled to, to perfection, you know, just like, you know, and she was very conservative with how she dressed. She didn't show a, a lot of skin. Um, very conservative, you know. Right. Her views were not conservative, but how she carried herself was conservative. And then to see someone like Shaka Khan, who was this young woman who was just like wild and free, you know, seeing that, I, I got to see this other side of what it means to be a woman, you know, and completely owning who you are. Whereas my mother, who came from more conservative, you know, humble means, was much more into doing the right thing and just trying not to be noticed, try to be like an upstanding citizen in the, you know, in the community, you know, like trying to do all the things that the stereotypes said that indigenous people or people of color were, you know, were lazy, were stupid, were this, were all these different things. So in her mindset, I guess, with the way that she came up was 
to show people that we are articulate, that we are well read, that we are, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Like this kind of stuff. That was her thing. Try not to fit into the stereotypes that they've created for us. Right. So she right. became more rigid on that. And then when you look at someone like Shaka Khan on Soul Train, you know, with her bikini top with the feathers and the, <laughs> you know, and she's just, ah, you know, and it's like Shaka Khan is like, fuck all that. This is me. Like me That's as nice. I am. Uh, kiss my ass, you know. Thank you. And right. that was, to me, it just showed like the difference in the generations. And I felt very inspired by that. I felt very inspired by that. I thought, well, you know, here's two beautiful women, my mom and then this younger, you know, little uh, spitfire, you know, and these are all the I could be the full spectrum. Listen to the full episode of this podcast at therhythmofrebellion.com. Thanks for listening. That was the first episode by Taina Seeley in season two of The Rhythm of Rebellion. And tune in every week at this time for another edited version by Moses Nagel for our program. And coming up, so that was Martha Redbone. Coming up, we have Janetta Benali, Mireya Ramos, and I'm probably butchering these names. Apologies. Jimena Violante, L-I-T-A, um, Sunny Sin, um, uh, and Zinia Rubinos, and Maria Jose Mon- Montillo. And so that was Taina Asili, The Rhythms of Rebellion. And that is our show. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Sina Bazilahiki, host and engineer. And I'm Bria Barthel. We thank all of our volunteers who made today's episodes possible. Joining us as volunteers were headlines from Mark Dunley, segment producers Willie Terry, Moses Nagel, Isabel Lafort, Marsha Lazarus, Taina Asili. Uh, this program covers stories of social and environmental justice produced by the community for the community and is supported by independent donations. If you value independent media, consider a gift of a monthly donation of any amount as a sanctuary sustainer by going to the, the donate button at mediasanctuary.org. We want to hear from you. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Media Sanctuary. We're also on Instagram at Hudson Mohawk Mag. Or you can also send us an email to hmm at mediasanctuary.org. Tune in weekdays at 7 a.m., 9 a.m., and 6 p.m. to hear local news or stream Sanctuary Radio at mediasanctuary.org. Full episodes and individual stories are available on demand at our website and on your favorite podcast platform. Thanks, everyone. Have a wonderful, wonderful listening experience. It's Nico, the youngest producer. You've been listening to Hudson Mohawk Magazine, featuring news and views from around the New York Capital Region. Listen at 7 a.m., 9 a.m., and 6 p.m. on Sanctuary Radio, 105.3 FM, Troy, and online at mediasanctuary.org. You can also visit mediasanctuary.org anytime to hear the Hudson Mohawk magazine on demand or to sign up for our podcast.